Well, um, good morning. I hope you all are doing well. My name's Adam, if you're a guest. I'm one of the pastors here. If I seem a little disgruntled this morning, it's because I slept on the porch last night. Not because Olivia and I aren't doing well. I feel like our marriage is fine. I just, it's because we have a dog that's a scaredy cat. And so um, the fireworks last night just kept going and going. Kept thinking, this is going to be the last one. And then it kept going and going, and our dog just has such high anxiety over fireworks. And so uh, we don't really let her in the living part of the house. So it's either me listening to her whine all night um, as she's like in the mudroom, um, or I just go to the porch and sleep on the couch and let Jenny sleep beside me. So that's what I did. So, um, so that's, that's my introduction. So if you have your Bible, <laughs> turn with me to the Gospel of John as we wrap up chapter 8 this morning. I'm a little bit tired. You see me yawn. It's not because I think this, the scriptures are, are boring. It's because I'm going on a little bit of sleep. Um, last week we started um, chapter 8. This morning we um, finish it out. And the rest of chapter 8, the, the question of Jesus, his authority and identity, it continues to be the center of discussion between Jesus and the Jews. This has been going on for a few chapters. And so the question of who Jesus is is still the most important question you could ask yourself today. More than where are you going to eat lunch, what are you going to do tomorrow for the 4th of July, the most important question you can ask is who is Jesus? And we've, we've talked about this many times through this series. Is he Lord? Is he maybe some kind of lunatic? Is just kind of crazy? This crazy man that thinks he's God? Or is he just some man who lied about who he was, just trying to trick people, deceive them? Or maybe he was the legend. Maybe he didn't even really exist. So your answer to that question is huge for a couple reasons. First, your salvation is resting upon what you believe about Jesus. Second, not only is your spiritual freedom at stake, but your mental and emotional health is at stake. See, your self-identity is only found as we rest in his identity. Our confusions about who we are and why we're here and what we're meant to do with our lives all increasingly resolve themselves as we see him for who he truly is. Because we were made for him. And that's when you begin to really um, understand life and purpose and meaning is when you understand you were created for his glory. And so with that in mind, let me just pray over this passage as we pick up where we left off last week in verse 12 of chapter 8. Oh, Father, I ask and beg, I plead that you would open up our eyes, our hearts, our ears to hear from you this morning. Or may we leave this place free, that we're not bound to our sin, that we are free from captive. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So he picks up in verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the phrase, I am the light of the world, is one of these seven I am statements found in John's gospel. These statements are John's way of intentionally connecting Jesus to this great I am from Exodus 3. We'll see it throughout this chapter. 
This light imagery was first used by John back in his prologue in chapter 1. John writes in chapter 1, verse 5, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, from the context, we know that John is referring to Jesus here when he says light, that Jesus shines in a dark world, and the dark world has not overcome him. And then once again in verse 9, we see the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So we see that Jesus gives light to everyone. He makes everything make sense. The world makes sense when you see the world through the lens of Jesus. He was in the world, but not of the world. He made it, but yet the world did not know him. That's what we see playing out in chapter 8. So in chapter 8, John is continuing this theme of Jesus and light. By Jesus um, saying he is the light of the world, Jesus means that he illuminates man's purpose. That Jesus shines light into all the dark things in this world. He makes everything make sense. But this testimony that he's sharing, it greatly troubled certain Jews. Look down at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of judging a book by its cover. And he's making sure that everyone in the audience fully understands that he is not like the Pharisees. Jesus is not saying that he doesn't judge at all. He will make that clear in just a few minutes as we work through this passage. But here he is saying that he does not judge in the same manner that the Pharisees judge. If he did, the woman at the well would still be spiritually thirsty. Jesus says, you guys judge by the flesh, but that is not how I judge. Then Jesus continues to separate himself from the Pharisees in verse 16. He says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for if, for if it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Now, this statement, if you were here last week, we, we talked a lot about textual criticism, about the 753 through 811, does that really belong in Scripture? One of the reasons people put it there in that passage is because of the context of what we're reading right now. See, one of the issues with that passage last week was the Pharisees brought this woman who had, been committed, who had committed adultery, but we don't see the man who's involved. And so there's only one witness, the Pharisee who brought them. The way someone was found guilty in the Old Testament was if two witnesses had testified about the crime. So Jesus is saying here that his testimony has two witnesses. First, he is witnessing uh, to the validity of his own testimony. Then second, his father witnessed about Jesus. All the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, is pointing to himself, that the father who wrote, spoke to the prophets, was witnessing about Jesus himself. So the Jews find this quite interesting. They think, well, maybe we've got this all wrong. Maybe we would, you know, we would take back all these things we're saying. We would love to hear your father's testimony. 
So in verse 19, they ask, well, where's your father? You know, like, we wanna, we'd love to hear from him. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now, the treasury, it would have been a busy place. Um, Jesus wasn't hiding in secret. He was out in public. He was saying these things out in the open, and yet nothing happened to him because his hour had not yet come. He's in full control of everything that's going on. Jesus said, you, neither, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Now, this is an interesting phrase for people who think that religions like Islam or others and Christianity have the same God, you know, that we all work to the kind of the same place. Islam does not know Jesus. Islam denies the claims of Jesus being deity. He's not a God. And so Jesus would say to them, if you don't know me, then you don't know my father. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What a powerful phrase there. This is a truth that you and I could never say about ourselves. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Sadly, we far too often do the very things that pleases ourselves. Now, it's great when those things work out together, when the things that he wants you to do are also the things that you want to do, but oftentimes we chase after the things of flesh. Verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus says, you guys do not know me, and you're all going to die in your sin. I don't know about you, but that actually sounds really narrow-minded, doesn't it? If you don't believe me, then you're going to die in your sin. The reason that sounds narrow mind is because truth is objective, and by definition, truth is narrow. You ever thought about that? I know our culture would adamantly disagree with what I just said, and maybe even some of you here this morning would disagree with what I just said. But if you've ever taken or given a test, then you know that truth is not subjective. You ever heard someone say, yeah, Mrs. Arvon, uh, you know, that might be true for you, that's not true for me. I got this one right today. As long as teachers have red pens, truth is not subjective, okay? And Jesus says here, I, I'm going to a place where you cannot come. 
Your death and decay are not welcome to where I'm going. The death that Jesus is referring to here is a spiritual death. You know, even Jesus, he's not trying to like avoid all types of death. He, he foreshadows his own physical death when he says in verse 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus being lifted up here, it's, it's a reference to both the crucifixion and his glorification. Only someone who truly knows that, that Jesus is fully God would ever make much of his name. And when you know who Jesus is, then you have no problem lifting up the Son of Man. You, you want to talk about him. You, you make much of his name. You, you speak about him at work, at home. You, you love to talk about Jesus. At the same time, I know we're only in chapter 8, but we are nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's about six, seven months away from his life on earth. He's saying that you will know that I am, and I think there's a play here on the I am, when you see me lifted up on a cross and then defeat death. After he said these things, many believed in him. Then verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's a phrase you hear in cultural circles all the time, right? The truth will set you free. Um, it's rarely put in this context. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, Jesus begins by informing those who believe in him that, that in order to be one of his disciples, it's more than just saying some prayer. We're coming to some religious gathering like we're all doing this morning. Um, to be one of his disciples means to abide or to hold on to his teaching. Jesus is not just asked for their commitment card. Um, he asked for a complete and total devotion to him. The test of true discipleship is abiding. It's continuing. It's remaining, persevering in the faith. Sadly, we will see that these Jews were not genuine disciples. In just a few verses, we'll see where Jesus says that my word finds no place in you, and they could not bear to listen to his word. So they don't abide. And that's the question Jesus is asking to you today. Are you abiding? Are you just along for the ride just while things are going great, but as soon as things get hard, you just kind of chuck your faith and just leave? Are you clinging? Are you continuing? Are you abiding to hold to Christ. See, Jesus is teaching that, that understanding the truth about him has a practical and personal freeing impact. Jesus is using captive language here. He says the truth will set you free, which Jesus says in chapter 14, that he is the truth. He is the truth that will set you free. So the truth will set you free. If you are in Christ, you are free this morning. But if you are not in Christ, then you are still bound. You are a slave. Now, interesting enough, many people claim that the reason they don't want to become a Christian is because they don't want to lose their freedom. You've heard that, right? Um, you know, if I become a Christian, you know, I'll do that later. If I become a Christian, then I can't do the things I want to do now. Uh, this is a great deception by the enemy. One author writes this. It says, true freedom 
is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. See, I remember a time in my life where I continued to reject Jesus out of fear of losing my freedoms. I didn't want all the rules of Christianity. You know, it's going to cramp my style. I wanted to go do whatever I wanted. I actually never had autonomy over my life, even then. I was a slave. I did whatever my flesh told me to do. But I was deceived to think that was my choice. I wanted to go out and do these things, or I want to do this or that. I was never making the choice. It was always, I was always a captive to my flesh. See, real freedom is the ability to say no to the pleasures of sin, to be patient, to wait for the joy that comes in Christ. See, at that point in my life, I had no idea. I didn't, that didn't make any sense to me. Now I see it. I experience it. Abiding in Jesus sets us free from sin so that we can actually enjoy God and enjoy our life. It removes the chains of sin and gives us freedom in the Son. Now, this sounds like tremendous news, but in verse 33, the Jews, they didn't take it that way. They seem offended over something Jesus said. They answered him, we are offsprings of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, if you know anything about the Bible, this might be one of the most ridiculous statements ever made. I would love to see Jesus' face when they said, we have never been enslaved to anyone. Oh, really? Never? What about that time in Egypt? What about the time in Babylon? Were you not slaves in Egypt and Babylon? And aren't you currently slaves in Rome? Slaves of Rome? And I think this is how we often think of our own sin. The Jews don't even realize that they are currently slaves in their own country. So we, we, we've never been enslaved to anyone. They're slaves at this moment Jesus is speaking to them. They just had no idea. And I wonder how many people we come in contact every week feel the same way. We're good. We don't, we're not slaves. We do whatever we want. But they're slaves. See, sin deceives us to think that we have freedom where, in fact, we are still enslaved. See, Rome had given the Jews just enough freedom to where they didn't try to rebel against the kingdom. And the Jews thought, well, this is good enough. We're fine like this. But they were, in fact, slaves. Jesus answers them in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, the key word here is practices. It's a really important word here. Jesus does not say whoever commits sin is a slave, but rather whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. So you are going to commit sin at some point. I want to break the news to you. I'm glad you're sitting down. Could be today, okay? The question is, does that sin lead you to repentance, which is what a true follower, it should happen, or do you desire to make a practice out of sin? Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words, 
find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Notice here, John does not write, you could be free or, or might be free, but he says, you will be free. It's absolute. Meaning that Jesus is more powerful than your captive. The strong man can't stand against the one who comes and sets you free. Jesus is truly stronger. This is what happens when you're born again. Your first birth doesn't give you the power over or from sin, yet the second birth does. This is the point Jesus is making in verse 37 when he says, you are offsprings of Abraham. He's basically saying, listen, guys, I, I know that you truly are Jews. I get it. I know that you claim Abraham as your father, and in a physical sense, you guys are spot on. But spiritually speaking, Abraham is not your father. You guys remember uh, the scene from arguably the greatest movie ever, Remember the Titans? Remember this? Remember, remember the Titans? Encourage you to watch it. Um, right before the team goes off to training camp, Coach Boone looks at Gary Bertier and says, because once you get on that bus, you ain't got no mama no more. You got your brothers on the team, and you got your daddy. Now, you know who your daddy is, don't you? And Gary's just kind of staring at him. He says, Gary, if you want to play on this football team, you answer me when I ask you, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy, Gary? Who's your daddy? In cases, you are. See, the Jews answered, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. See, Jesus makes his point even more clear. There is no way that you are Abraham's children. Abraham cannot be your daddy. Abraham's true children would do what Abraham did. You guys sure don't act like Abraham's children. So this is the equivalent to like when, one, when like a child does something that one of the parents does not approve of, and they say to the other parents, do you know what your child did today? That has to be your child because my child will never act that way. And what the Jews are trying to do is that they're trying to kill Jesus. And Jesus is saying, Abraham would have never done that. Yes, physically you are the sons of Abraham, but spiritually speaking, Abraham is not your real father. And this is actually one of the arguments Paul makes in Galatians, that just because you're a Jew doesn't really make you a Jew. You're not a true Jew unless you trust in Christ. He says, spiritually speaking, you are acting more like your real father. And do you know who your real father is? Well, he informs them in verse 41. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of my sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Yikes. Can you imagine Jesus? Like, we all want to have like that encounter with Jesus. What would that be like? Uh, I would not want him to say this to me. Jesus is not holding anything back on these guys. This is not the picture of Jesus that typically comes to our, mom, our mind when we think of Jesus, right? Jesus tells them that their father is the devil. I mean, this is so offensive. And Jesus says to all of us that your actions speak louder than your words. Your words say that Abraham is your father, but your actions say that the devil is your father. I don't know if there's a greater insult to a group of religious folk. He calls them sons of Satan. Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. I think it's important, um, and I don't know, some of you come from different backgrounds, and maybe you're kind of searching out Christianity and you know, spiritual realms, and I think it's important here that as you're understanding Christ, it seems like Christ believes in a real, actual devil. Uh, the devil is not some made-up character with horns and pitchfork and a tail. He is real and far more dangerous than we probably give him credit. Um, the devil exists, and there are people who really serve his agenda. And I think these people need an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. But we don't talk about Satan a lot in church, do we? I think there's two extremes, and I think they're both wrong. I think one extreme is sometimes we talk about Satan and everything. Like, the devil made me do it. The devil always out to get you, and devil, devil, devil. Then there's the other side where we never talk about the devil. We just think that that's just... It's not really there. It's maybe like a cosmic force or karma or something working against you. No, there's actually a devil, and he hates you. Um, we see what happens next is what often hap happens when you confront someone. Jesus tells them that their father is the devil, meaning that they are acting like a demon, like they're little demons. He's big D demon. They would be little D demon. Then look at verse 48. The Jews answer him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So this is your classic blame shift. We all do this. Um, it's as old as the Garden of Eden. Jesus says, you guys have a demon. And they say, nah, -uh, you do. <laughs> and Jesus answers, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not, listen to this, yet I do not seek my own glory there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Notice that Jesus doesn't get into the debate. He doesn't come back, no, nah, you. He just keeps going. He, does not, he doesn't allow them to switch the topic. He sticks to the theme of his authority and his identity. And Jesus makes two gigantic claims here about his authority and his identity. First, he says that he does not seek his own glory, 
But there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. This is huge. The Jews knew that God does not share his glory with anyone. That's clear from Isaiah 42.8. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. Yet Jesus says that the Father seeks his glory. See, he's either Lord, and he can say that because he's Lord, or he's a madman, he's a lunatic. Who would, who would say that? Who would have the audacity to say, I don't glorify myself, God glorifies myself? Listen, if you hear people talk like that, just get away from them. Lightning is about to strike them down, all right? This is, this is, this is a big, huge claim that Jesus is making here. There's no other way to understand this other than that Jesus is putting himself on par with God. He said, yeah, God glorifies, you know, God doesn't share his glory with anyone. And yep, that's, that's who I am. I'm God. This is huge. Second claim that Jesus makes here, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now this gets the Jews riled up here. Notice first, this statement is all-inclusive. If anyone... I mean, how marvelous is this? If anyone. He doesn't say, if you've never messed up too badly, then you will never see death. Or if you come from a religious family or born in a certain country or have so much money or dress a certain way, then you will never see death. Is that what he says? Jesus says, if anyone. I don't know about you, but when I see anyone, anyone would include all of you today. If any of you, that's how you could read this, it would include you and all your baggage that you bring in this morning. Thinking there's no way it could be me. There's no way that Jesus can work in my life. Yeah, absolutely can. The death that Jesus is referring to here is a person's spiritual death, not physical death. He mentioned this earlier. Jesus makes a promise to, to you here that you don't have to remain spiritually dead. You don't have to wait, like, waiting just, like, begrudgingly for this spiritual judgment to happen. Instead, you can be made alive and can look forward to eternal life with God in heaven forever. Jesus came to bring spiritual life to the spiritually dead. See, my family, they will um, sometimes make fun of me, of my view of death. I have such a simple view of death. Um, I say simple. Others may say pessimistic. My, my view is basically we're all going to die. That, that's reality. I, I'm, I'm not so sure why death shocks us so much. There, there are no er, early or accidental deaths. We each live a full life. That full life looks different for us all. For one, it might be nine years old, and for another, it might mean 90 years old. See, Jesus is not protecting us from that death. It is coming for us all. In fact, it is that death that actually ushers us into the life of eternity in which we will never die. The one who believes or puts their trust in Jesus, if he dies, he will live. It's important to remember that the physical death is just a shadow. You guys, you all seen shadows. There's probably some shadows in here somewhere. A shadow is a resemblance of something real. It's not authentic. When you think about it, which would you be more afraid of? 
a real lion or a shadow of a lion? The shadow of a lion can't hurt you. If you saw the shadow of a lion, I'm guessing you would be looking for the real lion, right? So you see that that is what physical death is. It might be scary. It might catch you and your family by surprise. But if you are in Christ, it cannot hurt you. That's the promise Jesus makes here. We who believe will never experience death. We will never be cut off from God. We will only be cut off from our physical bodies for a time. So Jesus makes two huge claims, and we see in verse 52 that the Jews do not like what Jesus is saying. They say, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Well, yes, yes I am. That's part of what Jesus was thinking. And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? I mean, can he make it any more clear? You ever been talking to someone and you're just like, they just don't get it? Like, you just can't, and I don't know how else to explain it. Sometimes people just cannot hear what you're saying. So Jesus, he takes another shot at it in verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. This sounds pretty clear to me what he's saying. I don't glorify myself, but my Father, whom you call God, whom you call Yahweh, he glorifies me. What an audacious statement to make. Who would ever say such a thing? Who would ever say that God glorifies them? He continues, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Wow. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Basically, you can't be older than 30. How in the world did you, how did Abraham see your day? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that might not make any sense if you don't have a running background of the Old Testament. But look the response in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, what in the world about Jesus saying, he said way more offensive things before this, but now he's saying, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they want to kill him because they finally understand what he's actually saying. Before Abraham was, I am is a reference to Jesus using the name of God. I am who I am from Exodus 3. The Jews finally hear what he's been trying to say for quite some time now. They now understand that Jesus is calling himself God. And the Jews knew that there was only one God. And now they want to kill him. And that's, you're going to see from chapter 8, the rest of John's gospel, you're going to see this, this intense attack against Jesus. 
But make no mistake, Jesus is not hiding because he's afraid of them. He's not a coward. He's not afraid to die. He hid himself because it is not yet his time. His time is coming soon, but it's not now. And so being sovereign, you, you kind of know when your time is coming. It's kind of helpful to be sovereign. He knew that in about six, seven months, I'm going to go to a cross. I'm going to lay down my life for all these people, even those that are going to put me on the cross. See, we don't have that luxury. Our time might be when we are 100, or it might be this week. Are you ready to face the shadow? The physical death has no power over you. If Jesus has set you free, then you are free indeed. Chapter 8 is about seven months from where Jesus will be lifted up on a cross. And that event is why we don't have to fear death. Jesus defeated death. He took on our sin, paid our way, and he has power to overcome, to, to defeat you know, our death as well, to raise us new life. This morning, we get a chance to reflect on the greatest event in human history, the death and resurrection of Christ. So if, if you have never been set free, what that means is you still do whatever your flesh tells you to do. That you've been deceived, you think you have complete freedom, but yet you've never repented of your sin, you never put your trust in Christ, today is the best day to do it ever. Trust in him today. Confess your sin. Tell Jesus he's Lord, that you want him to be everything in your life. Um, I would love to pray with you if you have questions on what that means exactly to become a follower of Christ. Whoever invited you, they've already been praying for you probably as well, so just talk to them. Um, but we, as brothers and sisters, we're going to celebrate what Christ did for us this morning. So if you've been set free this morning, then we invite you to take of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper for us, we have um, two different stations. If you're a guest, if you have been set free, we invite you to participate with us. Um, we don't, we don't um, practice close communion. So if you have confessed your sin, you trusted in Christ, then whenever you're ready to come, um, take of the cup. So you'll actually take two cups. Um, one will have the bread. The bread represents his body that was broken. Uh, and then the top cup is... Um, represents the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sin. So whenever you are ready, you come and take of the Lord's Supper.